I'm David DeCoste, the Director of Campus Ethics Programs at the Markville Center for Applied Ethics. And welcome to this event, Free Speech on Campus, with Professor Erwin Chemerinsky of Bolt Hall at UC Berkeley. Um, first, I just want to thank the Desa Museum. It's always wonderful when we can host events here. And really invite you all, if you have a moment, to check out this wonderful exhibit on Dante um, and others when the museum is open and accessible. Um, they do a wonderful job here. Uh, the Ethics Center is also delighted to co-sponsor this event with the Santa Clara University School of Law and with the Santa Clara University Library, which has selected Professor Chemerinsky's book, Free Speech on Campus, as its book of the quarter. A quick note about the book, that we'll be raffling three copies of the book at the end of this session. So all those who pre-registered were automatically entered to win, um, and only those pre-registered are eligible. Sorry about that. Uh, but you must be here to win, so please be sure to stay until the end when we have a drawing, and then get your photograph taken with Professor Chemerinsky and the book. So that's a pretty good deal. Um, also, if you could please, after the event, fill out the evaluations. Uh, we will have um, Professor Chemerinsky's talk, and then afterward, um, he will take questions and we'll have discussion. We have two microphones here that um, a couple of us will be handing, uh, holding. So please put up your hand and uh, then state your question. And if you could please keep them brief uh, and to the point, that would be great. Also, the book will be for sale uh, after the talk as well, so please keep that in mind. And I'll now turn things over to Lisa Kloppenberg, the Dean of the Santa Clara University School of Law, who will introduce Professor Chemerinsky. Lisa. Thank you, David. We are honored to host Erwin Chemerinsky, the new Dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law to talk about free speech on campus. This is the third time that Dean Chemerinsky has spoken to our community in the last five years, although he is in high demand across the country. Thank you, Erwin, for always making time for us. Dean Chemerinsky has a distinguished background in the legal academy. He is truly a model teacher-scholar. Even as the founding dean at the UC Irvine School of Law for nearly 10 years, he taught large sections of constitutional law students every year. He loves teaching, and his passion for the law is contagious. I was very fortunate that he was my constitutional law professor during his 21 years at the other USC. And he's a major reason why I have taught and written about the Constitution and the federal courts. Over the years, Dean Chemerinsky has taught thousands of law students, and nearly all of them remember him as their favorite teacher. I know, you think I'm exaggerating, but just wait. <laughs> he also instructs tens of thousands of lawyers, from recent graduates reviewing for the bar exam to federal judges. Indeed, he's the most sought-after speaker by the judges who rave about his recall and insights. We're truly blessed to learn from an outstanding teacher tonight. Dean Chemerinsky is also a respected scholar. He's been highly prodigious in his publications, even as dean. His constitutional law textbook is one of the most popular in the country, and my students have found its presentation of complex issues,
accessible and useful. He is the author of 10 books, including two books published in 2017 by Yale University Press, Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable, and Free Speech on Campus with Howard Gilman. Dean Chemerinsky has also authored more than 200 law review articles and is a frequent public commentator. It is so appropriate that he now holds the Jesse H. Chopper chair at Berkeley. Finally, Dean Chemerinsky is a person of thoughtfulness and courage. He carefully considers many perspectives when he addresses complex and heated public issues. Our Santa Clara community brings many different perspectives to the debate over free speech on campus. Some of you, like me, may be concerned that our modern First Amendment law protects too much hatred, vitriol, and offense. If so, I highly recommend this new book. Yes, we care very much about our students, and we want to nurture a safe, respectful community for all persons. In addition to protecting those who are traditionally oppressed by the majority, like immigrants and refugees, Dean Chemerinsky reminds us that the free expression of students and others with unpopular minority viewpoints on our campuses also must be safeguarded if we are to preserve free expression in our democracy. Thank you for gracing us with your wisdom today. so much for that incredibly kind introduction. I think one of the greatest joys of being a professor, I think one of the greatest joys of being a professor is to watch the accomplishments of my former students. There's no former student who I'm more proud of or has accomplished more than Lisa Kloppenberg, who's the terrific dean of the law school here. I've always believed that each generation thinks that it's the first one to discover sex. <laughs> Likewise, I think that every generation believes that it's the first one to discover issues of free speech on campus. The reality is there have been controversies over free speech on campus as long as there have been campuses. And yet I have the sense that things have changed over the last several years. Our model, we imagine issues of free speech on campus, was the Berkeley free speech movement of the mid-1960s. That involves students on campus demonstrating over the ability to have speech of things that were unrelated to university administration and university activities. It was about students wanting to speak on campus and administrators trying to stop it. But now things are quite different on many campuses. It's often outsiders who want to come and speak on campus. People like Milo Yiannopoulos, Richard Spencer, and Coulter, Ben Shapiro. It's often outside groups that are reacting against them, including violently. It's almost exactly a year ago today that when Milo Yiannopoulos came to speak on the UC Berkeley campus, the radical group in Tifa engaged in violence that stopped this from happening. I think there's other ways in which things have changed, too. I have the sense that, especially over the last year, we've turned over a rock 
hateful expression more likely to be part of the public discourse. We all read the signs that were held up in Charlottesville at the end of the summer. I'm 64 years old, but I don't ever remember seeing somebody hold up in public a sign that said, and I'm quoting verbatim, kites belong in the oven. I've seen it even in my own law school. In September of this year, Alan Dershowitz, conservative Harvard law professor, came to speak. There was certainly tension surrounding his appearance because he was talking about Israel, an always controversial topic. But it went off without incident. That afternoon, someone drew a swastika over his picture on a law school bulletin board. And a law professor for 38 years. I don't ever remember being in a building on campus where somebody drew a swastika on the wall. At the same time, I have a sense that student attitudes about free speech are changing. The book, Free Speech on Campus, is an outgrowth of a freshman seminar at the University of California, Irvine, that Howard Gilman, the chancellor, and I taught two years ago. We began the first class by presenting to our students a real-world situation and then polling them for their views. It's an event that occurred about a year earlier, in March 2015, at the University of Oklahoma. It involved a group of fraternity members who were on a bus together. They were all dressed in formal wear, going to a fraternity event. Only fraternity members were on the bus. Two members of the fraternity led those on the bus in a very offensive racist chant. When the president of the University of Oklahoma, David Moore, heard about this, he immediately expelled those two students from school and suspended the fraternity to be able to act on campus. We asked our students, if those who had been expelled sued the University of Oklahoma for violating their First Amendment rights, who should win? The students' free speech claim or the University of Oklahoma? 15 to nothing, our students voted in favor of the president of the University of Oklahoma. Now, one was willing to take a free speech position. Just last week, a professor who teaches undergraduates at the University of North Carolina wrote me. He has an undergraduate class of 76 students. And he began with the same problem. He said they voted 76 to nothing in favor of the University of Oklahoma. Not one was willing to take the free speech position. And yet, I'll explain to you, if the students who were expelled could sue the president of the University of Oklahoma and the University, there's no doubt that the students would have won and the university would have lost. In fact, the general counsel of the University of Oklahoma told me that they knew if they were sued, they would lose, but the president nonetheless felt the need to take the stand. The Pew Research Institute did a study, and 40% of the undergraduate survey said that they believed that offensive and hate speech should be banned on campus. So all of this is the context for what we're talking about tonight and what the book is about. I think it's very important to have this discussion to separate what's the current law from what do we think the law should be. Both of those are conversations we're having. I want to focus on the former, talking about what is the current law with regard to free speech on campus. There was an event at the University of California, Berkeley in September, in anticipation it was supposed to be free speech week, a time when Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and Steve Bannon, we're all going to come speak. And the professor on the panel said, does it matter what the law provides? The Chancellor Carol Press should exclude these offensive speakers from coming onto campus. There was rousing applause when he said that. 
In the question and answer period, a student very eloquently said that she felt threatened by having eight speakers on campus. And it doesn't matter what the First Amendment is, the chancellor should take a stand and exclude them. And there was rousing applause. And then I, towards the end of the panel, said, let me talk about what the law is. It's clear that if the chancellor were to exclude Miley Annapolis or Ann Coulter or Steve Bannon, the chancellor would get sued. She would lose. When Auburn University tried to exclude Richard Spencer, he and his supporters sued. They won. The university lost. The university would have to pay the attorney's fees for the excluded speakers. Because the law is so clear here, there might be personal liability for money damages. I said, those who are excluded <coughs> make themselves out to be martyrs and victims. They get to speak anyway, so nothing would be achieved. No one applauded when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and what I want to explain to you tonight is what is the current law with regard to the First Amendment? We certainly condemn the question and answer period type of whether this is desirable and what should it be. I want to talk about the current law in four points. First, all ideas and views can be expressed on a college campus. The core of the First Amendment is that the government never can restrict speech based on the viewpoint expressed. Now, I want to be clear that the First Amendment applies only to the government and all government entities, like public universities. The First Amendment doesn't apply to private universities. So private universities have far more latitude with regard to regulating speech because they're not covered by the Constitution. Now, in California, it's a little bit more complicated because there's a statute, the Leonard Law, that says that a private university cannot punish speech, that a First Amendment would prohibit a public university from punishing. And that also applies in high schools. A private high school can't punish speech, but the First Amendment would keep a public high school from being able to punish. But what I'm talking about tonight is really about the First Amendment. Now, that said, I believe that colleges and universities should be committed to academic freedom. And a core part of academic freedom is that all ideas and views should be able to be expressed. This includes even offensive ideas and views. The Supreme Court on so many occasions has said that the government cannot punish speech, create liability for speech, deny benefits for speech on the grounds of offensive. There's a Supreme Court case earlier this decade that illustrates this. It's a case called Snyder versus Phelps. Well, it's a small church out of Topeka, Kansas, the Westboro Baptist Church. They make it a practice of going to funerals of those who died in military service and using them as the occasion for expressing a very vile anti-gay, anti-lesbian message. Matthew Snyder was a Marine who died in military service in Iraq. The members of the Westboro Baptist Church went to his funeral in Maryland. Before the funeral, they asked the police where they could stand. The officers pointed an area about a thousand feet away from the funeral ceremony to be held. Before the funeral, they chanted and sang. During the funeral, they were silent, but they held up signs. That night, Matthew's father, Albert Snyder, was watching the news, and he couldn't read what was on the signs. He was deeply offended. He sued the members of the Westboro Baptist Church for intentional infliction of emotional distress and invasion of privacy. A jury in federal court have awarded him $10 million in damages. The United States Supreme Court, 8 to 1, ruled in favor of the members of the Westboro Baptist Church and against Albert Snyder. 
Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court. And he held, as I said, that the government never can create liability or punish speech on grounds that the speech is offensive, even very deeply offensive. It is the core of freedom of speech that all ideas, all views can be expressed. Second principle, freedom of speech is not absolute. There are categories of unprotected speech. We're all familiar, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' famous statement, that there's no right to falsely shot fire in a crowded theater. At least since 1942, the Supreme Court has said that there are some categories of unprotected speech. As an example, child pornography is a category of unprotected speech. The government can punish the sale, distribution, or even possession of child pornography. False and deceptive advertising is unprotected speech. There are three categories of unprotected speech that are relevant to the discussion of free speech on campus. It's very important, thinking of these categories, to separate the colloquial use of the terms that define the categories, as opposed to the legal test for each of these categories. I'll show you what I mean. The first category of unprotected speech that's relevant here is incitement of illegal activity. The Supreme Court long has said that there's no First Amendment right to incite people to violate the law. But the test for incitement is quite restrictive and difficult to meet. Because of a 1969 Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio, there the Supreme Court said the government can punish advocacy as incitement only if there's a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity and only if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal activity. Example, imagine that there is an angry crowd on a campus. And imagine that a speaker exhorts the crowd to commit acts of violence, commit acts of vandalism, to injure people. I think in those circumstances, it's likely that the speaker could be punished for incitement. Imagine, though, that someone like Richard Spencer or Milo Yiannopoulos comes onto campus and there's a strong reaction against the speaker. Can the speaker be punished for incitement? In all likelihood, no. Because you can't say that the speaker was advocating that the crowd react against him, even if there was a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity. The reaction of the audience cannot be a basis for suppressing or punishing the speaker. That doesn't fit with the test for incitement. A second category of unprotected speech that's relevant are so-called true threats. The phrase true threats comes from the Supreme Court. It actually comes from a Supreme Court case from 50 years ago, United States versus Watts, that involves a federal statute that makes it a federal crime to threaten the President of the United States. The Supreme Court upheld the statute, but the Supreme Court said it's important to draw a distinction between mere hyperbole and true threats. True threats are not protected by the First Amendment. There's actually now a split in the lower courts as to what's the appropriate test for determining if something's a true threat. My view is there's no First Amendment right to cause a person to reasonably fear imminent danger to his or her physical safety. If speech causes a person to reasonably fear for imminent danger of physical safety, 
shouldn't be seen protected by the First Amendment. Imagine a situation where an angry crowd surrounds a student on campus. And the crowd, the group, yells things at the student that causes him, her to fear that there's going to be physical consequences. That would be a true threat, even if no blows are actually struck. That then wouldn't be speech protected by the First Amendment. A third category of unprotected speech that's relevant here is harassment. It's clear that harassing speech is not protected by the First Amendment. The clearest example would be if an employer says to an employee, sleep with me or you're fired. It's no defense for the employer to say that I was only engaged in speech. It was just words. It's interesting that to this point, there's very little law in terms of when does speech on campus cross the line and become harassment? But there is a good deal of law in the workplace context. And here the lower courts have said that generally the speech has to be directed at someone to be harassment, or it has to be sufficiently pervasive to materially interfere with employment opportunities based on race or sex or religious exploitation. I think this should be applied to the campus context. If the speech is directed at someone, or is so pervasive as to materially interfere with educational opportunities based on race or sex, religion or sex orientation, it should be protected by the First Amendment. Let me give you some examples. There's an incident at the University of California, San Diego, where someone draped over a tree branch what looked to be a, near, a noose. I don't think that could be punished as harassment even though it's deeply offensive. On the other hand, imagine that someone tapped onto a door in a dormitory, said an African-American student, would appear to be a noose. I think that could be punished as harassment. There's going to be hard line drawing as to when speech becomes harassment. But one thing is clear, just having unpopular or offensive speakers on campus isn't going to be enough to be harassment. I heard at UC Berkeley people saying, just having someone like Milo Yiannopoulos on campus is enough to be harassment. No court would find that means the legal test for harassment. Now you'll notice in going through these three categories, incitement, true threats, and harassment, what I didn't mention is a category of unprotected speech, and that's hate speech. It's clear that hateful expression is generally protected by the First Amendment. In the fall, I got so many calls from reporters who asked me, Professor, what's the distinction between free speech and hate speech? And I'd say, you're drawing a false distinction. Hate speech generally is protected as free speech. <laughs> you might remember in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the Nazi party wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois. Skokie is a suburb of Chicago. At the time, it was predominantly Jewish a large number of Holocaust survivors. Skokie attempted to exclude the Nazi party from being able to come, or to impose large costs and late insurance bonds on them. Every court to rule, including the United States Supreme Court, held that the Nazi party had the first amendment right to march in Skokie. For another example, a case from 1992, RAV versus City of St. Paul. St. Paul, Minnesota adopted ordinance that prohibited burning a cross or painting a swastika 
vile symbols of hate, in a manner like would anger, alarm, or cause resentment. The Supreme Court unanimously declared that law unconstitutional, making it clear that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. A decade later, in 2003, the court decided Virginia versus Black. It involved Virginia law that prohibited cross-burning. The Supreme Court, eight to one, declared that law unconstitutional, saying unless in the incident it amounted to a true threat, it couldn't be punished by the government. Why do we protect hate speech under the First Amendment? After all, almost every European country has a law that prohibits hate speech. One reason, I think, is the inability to define what's hate speech in a manner that isn't unduly vague or overbroad. Any law, any regulation of speech by the government, including a campus code, has to be clear about what's prohibited and what's allowed. It can't be unduly vague. It can't be overbroad. I've never seen a hate speech code or a hate speech law that wasn't unduly vague and overbroad. In the early 1990s, over 350 colleges and universities adopted so-called hate speech codes. Every single one to be considered by a court, without exception, was declared unconstitutional, most always on vagueness and overbreadth grounds. As an example, the University of Michigan adopted a hate speech code after a series of very ugly racist incidents on campus. It prohibited speech that stigmatized or demeaned on the basis of race, gender, sexualization, religion. But what does it mean to stigmatize or demean? A graduate student in sociobiology brought a challenge and said, my research is about whether inherent difference between men and women. I'm afraid that it might be seen as stigmatizing or demeaning on the basis of sex. Federal District Court declared it unconstitutional and said, Every court considered a hate speech law did so. I've read the hate speech laws of the Western European countries. I don't think there's a one that would run afoul of the constitutional prohibition against vague and overbroad laws regulating speech. I think also the experience under these hate speech codes, under hate speech laws in Europe, should cause us pause before embracing them. At the University of Michigan, Every enforcement action on the hate speech code, before it was put unconstitutional, was brought against African American and Latino students. When England adopted its first hate speech law, the first prosecution under it was brought against the Zionist group. The prosecutor said that under a United Nations resolution, Zionism could be considered a form of racism. In France, one of the most frequently prosecuted individuals under its hate speech law is the actress Bridget Bardot. She's an animal rights activist, and she's often criticized ritual sacrifice of animals as part of religion. She's gotten prosecuted for doing so. But most of all, I think, every court has said that hate speech is protected with the First Amendment because it expresses an idea. It's a vile idea, but nonetheless, it's an idea. And the government never can punish speech based on an idea or view expressed. I think Justice Harlan put this well in another context when he said, to censor words is to censor ideas. The government can't cleanse the English language to please the most squeamish among us. Third principle, campuses can have time, place, 
in manner restrictions, so long as they leave open adequate alternative places for communication. Even when there's a First Amendment right to speak, it doesn't mean that expression can occur at any time, in any manner, or even at any place. There's a First Amendment right to use streets and sidewalks for protests, that doesn't mean you can have a protest on the middle of a freeway at rush hour. I think that campuses can use time, place, and manner restrictions to prevent disruption of campus activities and also so as to protect safety. With regard to preventing disruption of campus activities, campuses can have free speech zones so long as they leave adequate places for communication. Campus can prohibit Protests or demonstrations in or near classroom buildings while classes are in session. That's a time, place, manner restriction. I also think that campuses can use time, place, manner restrictions so as to ensure safety. Campuses have both the legal and the ethical duty to ensure the safety of students, staff, and faculty. Last summer, the chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, Carol Crist, asked my advice and anticipation of the speakers coming on campus. And like I said, for the most controversial speakers, ideally have them speak in an auditorium, because then you can acquire tickets or identification to get in. You can have metal detectors. Police can secure the premises. If it's in the middle of campus, it's broad plaza in the middle of the Berkeley campus, impossible to do that. So when Ben Shapiro came to speak in September, the University of California, Berkeley, had him speak in the largest auditorium there, Zellerbach Hall. It did just what I suggested. It had requirement for tickets or identification. It had police there. And in that way, Shapiro was able to speak without disruption and safety on campus was assured. Fourth and finally, what about some of the cutting edge issues with regard to free speech on campus? Let me identify a number of these for you, ones that you've probably already heard of. One that's much discussed is the concept of safe spaces on campus. You've probably heard this phrase. It was uttered a lot in Berkeley in the fall, the students saying, the campuses have to provide us a safe space. I think we've got to be very careful about what we mean by safe spaces. If we mean by safe spaces, the campus has to assure the physical safety of students, staff, and faculty under complete agreement. If we mean by safe spaces that campuses need to provide a place of repose for especially students, but also for staff and faculty under agreement, I believe there can be much more in the way of restrictions of speech in dormitories than in open areas of campus, so long as the restrictions are completely neutral. That's about providing repose. But if what safe spaces means is stopping the expression of ideas and views, because it will make students feel uncomfortable and say, that's never allowed on a campus. We can't have campus deciding that certain views, certain ideas are so threatening that they're going to be suppressed. That's inconsistent with the first principle that I mentioned. A second concept that's much discussed now is trigger warnings. This two you've probably heard of. A trigger warning is where a professor has to inform the students before covering offensive material. I was doing trigger warnings long before I'd ever heard that phrase. 
When I teach First Amendment law, I always play for my students the George Carlin monologue on the seven dirty words, which is the future of a Supreme Court case, FCC versus Pacifica. And I always tell them that this monologue uses profanities, sexual innuendo. In fact, I always invite them if they want, they can leave for five minutes when I play the monologue. Actually, never still leave for it, but I've given them a trigger <laughs> one. When Howard Gilman and I taught our seminar on free speech, we read to our students the chant in that bus on the fraternity at the University of Oklahoma. And we warned our students that it was racist, it was lynching in a positive manner, it was deeply offensive. That was a trigger warning. I see no problem with that. My concern is when campuses would require professors to give trigger warnings. There was such a proposal at Oberlin College and such a proposal at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I think requiring professors to do that does raise questions of academic freedom. So I think professors need to decide what's the best way to teach the material. Sometimes they'll be warning the students against. Sometimes first thing is better not to. A third concept that's much in vogue right now is microaggressions. Microaggressions or speech that will offend people but generally the speaker is unaware of it. It's not an intentional racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic statement, but it's a statement that nonetheless is that and is hurtful. I believe that campuses have the obligation to educate students in terms of what speech might be offensive to others, what speech others might find to be microaggressions. I think campuses have a duty to try to create an inclusive environment for all students. Now, when I've said this, I've sometimes been criticized for advocating political correctness. I strongly disagree. I think we all learn from a young age things that are appropriate and inappropriate to say in public or to others. I think it's completely appropriate for schools, educational institutions, to teach students about this. A fourth concept as much discussed now is so-called no platform. No platforming is where students disrupt invited speakers to ensure that they don't have a platform on campus. So there's been a lot of this in recent years. This fall, attorney for the ACLU was going to speak at William and Mary Law School, and students disrupted in a way that she couldn't be heard. There was another incident this fall where University of Oregon President Michael Schill was going to do a state of campus dress, and students disrupted so he couldn't be heard. Several years ago, University of California, Irvine at the time, Israeli Ambassador Michael Oren was scheduled to speak. A student stood up and shouted so he couldn't be heard. A student was escorted away. Ambassador Oren began again. Another student stood up and shouted. Altogether, 11 students did this. Those who have engaged in disruption, and all of these instances say, they're just engaged in speech. They should have the First Amendment right to do that. They're just ensuring that this university doesn't give a platform to a speaker who shouldn't have it. I very strongly disagree with those who claim there's a First Amendment right to engage in disruption. I think that there can't be a First Amendment right to use speech to keep others from being heard. That really then would create a heckler's veto. Any audience could stop a speaker from being heard just by reacting against the speaker. The only speakers we'd ever be able to listen to are those where there's an audience that cares enough try to silence them. A fifth issue that's coming up a great deal now concerns 
the duty of colleges and universities to spend money so as to ensure safety in the speaker. I think this is one of the hardest issues that's coming up. Um, this past fall, when Ben Shapiro spoke at University of California, Berkeley, the campus paid $600,000 in security to allow him to speak without incident. A few days later, Miley Annapolis came back onto campus, and they spent some other half million dollars to allow Annapolis to speak without incident. That's all money that could go to the educational mission of the campus. And the question is, how much does a campus have to spend? At what point could a university say, we just can't afford the cost of protecting the speaker, protecting safety, and so therefore we're going to cancel the speaker from going forward? The law doesn't provide us an answer to this question yet. It's clear that the campus can't charge speaker or student group an amount that would keep the speaker from being able to be heard. The government can never condition a right on having to pay so much money that it can't be exercised. The government couldn't say, for instance, that women have a right to an abortion, but only if they pay a million dollar tax. That would be unconstitutional. The Supreme Court isn't clear that government officials can't have discretion in setting the amount of the fee to risk their engaging in viewpoint or content-based discrimination. But beyond that, we don't have a good answer to how much does a campus need to spend. This past summer, Chancellor at UC Berkeley, Kel Christ, asked me this question. How much does the First Amendment require us to spend? And I explained to her what I said to you. The law is unclear. I said, you know, if I was your lawyer, and now I'd go to campus counsel, I would tell you you have to spend a reasonable amount. And She's too polite to roll her eyes or raise her eyebrows. But that's really what she did. I mean, that doesn't give much sense. And I said, you know, if I were your lawyer, I would say you have to think about two things. First, what's your stomach for being sued? If you exclude a speaker because you don't want to pay the cost of security, you will get sued. And if you lose and the law's uncertain, you'll have to pay attorney's fees. Also, what do you want your message to be at this point in time? And she decided, I think quite wisely, she wanted the message to be that Berkeley is a free speech campus and decided to spend the money. But what if it wasn't just a couple of days or a free speech week? What if Miley Annapolis and company decided it's going to be a free speech semester and every week they'll be there? And it's not a million dollars, but $20 million. When can the university say, we just can't afford the cost of safety, so we'll allow it? The law is not clear. Final issue with regard to cutting-edge matters of the First Amendment concerns the internet. And I believe that the hardest questions concerning free speech in the years ahead are going to come up with regard to the internet. The internet really changes everything with regard to free speech on campus. As I said at the beginning of remarks, our model, our mental image for speech on campus is the students at UC Berkeley during the free speech movement on campus and the administrators trying to stop them. But the internet involves speech that's off campus that can often have an enormous effect on campus. The internet, I think, is the most powerful medium for communication that we developed since the printing press. It's tremendously democratized the ability to reach a mass audience. It used to be to reach a mass audience you'd be rich enough to own a newspaper to get broadcast lessons. Now, any of us with a phone in our pocket can reach a mass audience instantaneously. You don't even need a smartphone to do it. You just go to a library where there's a computer hooked up to a mother. But this then means that the internet can be a tool for harassment on campus. 
And we've seen that in a number of places. In fact, I'm representing the students at Mary Washington University, suing campus officials for not doing enough to protect women students there from harassment over the internet. The internet can be used as a medium for disclosing very private information about the person, so-called doxing. Why do campuses have the authority to be able to punish speech over the internet if it's harmful? The law here simply has a cut out to technology. So those are the basic principles. Those are the cutting edge issues. Now, although I strongly believe that freedom of speech is essential to the very nature of an academic institution, I also think that college and universities have the obligation to create an inclusive learning environment for all students. It just can't come by suppressing speech. And I think college universities can do a much better job of this. When there's hateful or offensive speech on campus, support the campus officials that they have freedom of speech as well. I think Oliver Wendell Holmes was right, that often the best remedy for the speech we dislike is more speech. I think college and universities do more to help students find ways to engage in counter-speech. When the white supremacist Richard Spencer spoke at Texas A&M University, there was an organized counter-demonstration. It was a large football stadium on campus. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people came to the counter protest. I've talked to faculty and administrators at Texas A&M, and they talked about how unifying it was for the campus, for it to come together in response to Richard Spencer. I certainly encourage students at Berkeley to have their own counter speech at Milianopolis and Coulter, Steve Bannon, that appeared on campus. But ultimately, what I need to convince my students of, but I think we need to convince society of, is we don't need protection of free speech for the speech we like. We would naturally let that occur anyway. That the only way that our free speech can be secure tomorrow is to protect the free speech that we detest today. Thank you, and let's take your questions. Of a newspaper in terms of what to publish or not publish. 
there's actually a statute that provides protection for things like Facebook in terms of what they've published, a provision of the Communication Decency Act of 1996. Um, but I think you raise a really good question. We regulate public utilities because of the, what they serve the public. Should we be regulating things like Twitter and Facebook in the same way? Now, regulating a public utility like an electric company doesn't raise free speech questions. The government would try to regulate what Facebook or Twitter did. That does raise free speech questions. And yet, it's a hard issue. We certainly would want Facebook to not allow revenge porn to be on its site, to take down revenge porn. There is an example of how the development of the internet can have a very detrimental consequence. Um, revenge porn didn't exist, at least in the way we think of it today, in, until the internet developed. And so we want Twitter to be able to take that down. And we wouldn't object if Twitter took down things that were clearly defamatory. Facebook took down this now. On the other hand, we don't want Twitter or Facebook to be taking down things based on the views expressed, because we believe that all views should be expressed. And how do we craft that? How do we craft that in a way that's consistent with First Amendment? I think it's an enormously difficult issue. And the law simply hasn't caught up here. To this point, what we're trusting is the good faith of those who are running these social media. So is that appropriate? So I think it's a great question, and the law just isn't there yet. Uh, on campuses when I was going to school, if we didn't like what someone had to say, we wouldn't go and listen to them. And now it seems like people through social media are getting groups to protest what other people are saying. People aren't listening to each other. Is there any indication at Berkeley, because I, I graduated from Berkeley, uh, that a discussion could be how can you you know, peacefully uh, get your, you know, voice or your opinions stated without being violent or uh, abusive, you know, to somebody who you don't agree with. To start with, as best I can tell, the violence has come more from off-campus groups, like in Tifa, than it's come from on-campus students. I certainly, at this event in Berkeley in the fall and some other events, encourage the students to not show up. If you dislike what Milo Yiannopoulos stands for, just don't go. Um, and I think there are ways in which students can engage in peaceful protest. Carol Chris said when she was president of Smith College, when Ann Coulter came, the audience which began to speak was essentially full. And as Ann Coulter was speaking, one group of women stood up, turned their back to Ann Coulter, and walked out. And then another group of students stood up, turned their back to Ann Coulter and walked out. So the time that Ann Coulter was finished, almost no one was left in the audience. That's an appropriate peaceful protest if you don't like what Ann Coulter stands for. Um, I think that college and universities need to encourage students to engage in peaceful protests, but need to sometimes give guidance as to ways to do this. The mics aren't working so well, but please just speak up. Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Don Vaughn. I'm a neuroscientist here at UCLA. Um, so I have some methodological interest in what you said, which is what I, what you said was that if you put 72 people or 76 and you ask them, should this type of speech be protected, you get 100% who say, no, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be said. 
when I, I mean, when I taught a class on neuroscience and bias, what I found was that's what people say unless you make it anonymous, and then you actually get a much more clean division. Oh, I agree. And, and so with that, but what, I, what that leads to as a question is, we talk about safe spaces, but I'm finding at both the universities I've now been at that there is bias towards one viewpoint or another. So you for, you, for example, listed all five conservative as hate speech. You didn't give any example liberal speakers who are hate, or hate speech. You know, that's a p-value less than 0.05, so I'd say there's something significant in why you chose that. And so, what I'm, what I'm really getting at is, how are you gonna make a safe space from a legal standpoint, both socially and from an economic standpoint, as far as not incentivizing, as you said, boycotts that are expensive, that apply equally to both sides? And you think the universities that you've consulted with have done a good job? Sure. Uh, let me bring it to three parts. There are devices that can be used in class where students get to vote anonymously. And I have no doubt that the results may be different when the students vote anonymously and they see each other's hands. Um, I mention, not because it's scientific or reliable, just that it's interesting that when I taught the class, I couldn't get any student to defend the free speech position. Not publicly. Not publicly. That's, but that's right. the issue with the discourse, right? That's right. Um, That's where we're at. What's interesting is at the end of the quarter, we asked our students the same problem. And they came out eight to seven on the free speech side. And it was a great discussion then. So there's lots of ways of interpreting what was going on at the beginning of the semester versus the end of the semester. Second, why the examples? At this moment in time, the speakers who were focused on, it's the controversy on campus, are Richard Spencer, Milo Yiannopoulos, and Coulter. Um, there aren't comparable liberal speakers that I know of that are provoking the same response. Had we had this conversation in the late 1960s and early 1970s, maybe we've been talking about Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. Um, and for those who are in law school now, I'm not going to ask you if you know who Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> And everybody would be saying, it's all about suppressing the liberal speakers, what about the conservative speakers? I can't think of an instance, um, well, I can certainly think of speakers, anybody quite like Richard Spencer on the left right now. Uh, maybe that exists. And the final um, point that you make is, I think that's why campuses have to be viewpoint control. I think that's why the rules of the campus have to be that all ideas can be expressed and they can neither stop liberal nor conservative or any other view, all should be able to be expressed. That to me is what an educational institution is about, is a place where all ideas can be expressed. Karina. Uh, so, um, actually kind of a follow-up on that. You talked about the, the dangers of vague laws, but there are a lot of laws that are not speech laws, that are sort of vague or have to be interpreted. So I, I wanted to put an example to you. Um, we had a controversy on campus here about the poster that we saw earlier that took a very offensive uh, tone in addressing two different issues. And looking at that, I personally thought uh, that that poster should have been allowed because it was addressing issues. But I could see a different situation where um, denying the humanity of other human beings is different than discussing issues. So and I'm speaking as um, you know, a Jewish person whose family survived the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, 
And if I was on campus, and I, I work at Santa Clara, if I were on campus and I saw a poster that said, Jews are cockroaches, as we had posters in Germany before the war, or such posters about any other human beings on campus, to me, um, those should not be allowed because they're not about issues, they're about dehumanizing human <coughs> beings, and to me, that would not be a vague law. That would be a pretty specific, you know, narrowing of what is not allowed. What are your thoughts on that? What you said is that if the law prohibits dehumanizing human beings, that's not vague. What does it mean to dehumanize? Say um, that a particular group of humans who are not like you are not... Let me give you an easy example of why I'm so concerned about that. Imagine a few years from now the Supreme Court overrules Roe versus Wade. That's certainly possible to imagine that could happen if there's another vacancy on the Supreme Court. And imagine as a state that prohibits all abortion, believing that abortion is a form of murder. And imagine it says, we're going to prohibit all advocacy of abortion rights because abortion dehumanizes what we believe are human beings. We believe that life begins at conception. And so we're going to stop any advocacy of abortion rights. In fact, you could say, we believe that since life begins at conception, any form of contraception that occurs after conception is dehumanizing human beings. I don't know how to separate that example from a law that dehumanizes human beings. Um, yeah, and I apologize. To me, it's pretty clear that a fetus is not a human being. So I know, but, but no, no. That's, uh, well, then you get into the, this is the speech I like, and I'll have that go out, and the speech that I don't like, I'm not going to allow that to go out. That's always the danger. Um, uh, take the sociobiology student at the University of Michigan. He said, my research is about whether there's inherent differences between men and women. Imagine he concluded, as some do, that there are some genetic differences. Is he dehumanizing human beings? But this comes down to, what do you mean by dehumanizing? Um, uh, what about in books? I mean, take the elders of Zion. Um, and it very much spread the worst stereotypes about Jews. I think it's important that people read the Elders of Zion to understand how Nazism and bias came. Should we be able to prohibit that book because it dehumanizes human beings? So I guess where I disagree with you is I don't think that dehumanizing human beings is a standard that could or should be First Amendment scrutiny. Uh, Jerry. I want to ask whether private universities really do have a free pass on the First Amendment. Uh, here in San Jose, we had a ruling uh, with regard to shopping centers, Prune Ridge, uh, that held that uh, shopping centers that invite the public uh, are still subject to the First Amendment rules in terms of uh, allowing people to collect petition signatures. Do you think that could ever be extended? to uh, private university campuses? Yes, and for the sake of brevity, I tremendously oversimplified the issues with regard to free speech in private universities. Start with most private universities have faculty handbooks and student handbooks that include a statement of commitment to free speech. Courts have said that faculty and student handbooks constitute contracts between the faculty in the university, the students in the university, and so free speech is more enforceable than that. Also, as to your example, you mentioned the case of Cunard versus Robbins, where the California Supreme Court said there's a right to use private shopping center for speech, even though there's no right under the First Amendment. 
There is a case in New Jersey, Princeton University versus Schmidt, where the New Jersey Supreme Court held under the New Jersey Constitution, there's a right to use campuses for speech. Just like the California Supreme Court's under the California Constitution, there's a right to use private shopping centers for speech. So I think that the issues with regard to free speech and private universities are enormously complex. Um, my ultimate response is, and then I'll tell you why I'm concerned, is that because of academic freedom, free speech should be the same on private university campuses as on public university campuses. And we say that in our book. What, though, of a religious university? What of a religious university that says, no, we exist with certain basic beliefs, and we should be able to prohibit those who advocate other than those beliefs. Um, that the idea of free speech is about tolerance and liberal inquiry, but what if they say there's certain things we don't want to be tolerant of? These are precepts of our day, and we should be able to prohibit other expression. I find that an enormously difficult issue. We dodge it in a footnote in the book, but <laughs> we disagreed a lot, ultimately, so we just don't have an answer to that issue. But generally, apart from that, I think free speech principles should be the same on private and public universities, and that's what we argue for in the book. Yes, please. Yes, hi. Amisha. Um, I thought, I was thinking about your examples of true threats. Um, and I guess um, my question is just kind of in regards to the distinction between true threats and harassment, because I think. Um, you know, the standard that you talked about of essentially having immediate, it was an incitement of immediate harm, something like that, um, that, um, you know, that it needs to be like a reasonable fear. But I guess to me it's kind of unclear, you know, if we're talking about like what groups of students, I, I think especially with race relations as they are for certain communities of color and what at what point are certain speeches, at what point do they cross over to a true threat versus harassment? And, yeah. I think that the core of true threat, as the courts have focused on it, is a fear of physical harm. And there has to be a reasonable fear of imminent physical harm. Now, I'll tell you where the circuits are split, and that's whether it has to be that the speaker desired to cause that or whether or not it's sufficient that the audience feels it. There was a Supreme Court case a few years ago where the issue was posed but not resolved. It's a case called Alanis versus the United States. It involved a man by Anthony Douglas Alanis. He and his wife, Tara Alanis, went through a very bitter divorce. She was awarded custody of the children. He posted on his Facebook page very angry messages. She felt threatened and went before the judge and got a restraining order. So often in these cases, the only effect was to encourage him to do more of this. And he posted this on his Facebook page in the form of rap lyrics. And in fact, at one point he posted he was going to go to a local kindergarten class and commit an act of oppression and violence, which is the question of which one. He was convicted in federal district court making threats at interstate commerce. There was affirmed by the Third Circuit. And the issue that was briefed to the Supreme Court is, does the First Amendment require to be shown that he desired to threaten them was enough that they felt threatened. The Supreme Court ducked the issue, deciding under the federal statute there's a specific intent requirement. The circuits are split. I actually hear a side with the circuits have said there's no First Amendment right 
cause a person to reasonably fear for imminent harm to his or her physical safety. You don't have to prove the speaker had the state of mind for desiring the cross. <laughs> Harassment is different and is much more focused on the emotional or the mental as opposed to the threat of physical danger. Lisa. Yes. Would you be willing to say more about what the law should be rather than what it is if you were the swing vote on the court? Uh, sure. So I'm less sure about what I think the law should be than I am in terms of what the law is. Um, I think it's right that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment, but I'm not sure that you know, when I look at some of the things that are hateful and the harms that they cause, I have doubt. Um, but I'm concerned about the things that I mentioned, so it would come to that conclusion. Um, I want to have much more protection of students, especially women and minority students in harassment. That's why when I was asked to represent the students at Mary Washington University against the university and a Title IX suit for not sufficiently protecting them from harassment, I agree and will argue that case in the Fourth Circuit. Um, so I want to see more protection from harassment than the law might provide right now. And I certainly go into more detail. David. Uh, yeah, so to pick up on that and also on the reader's point, I mean, the standard that's there in the International Human Rights Institute is that states are supposed to prohibit advocacy of racial superiority. That strikes me as neither vague nor overbroad. Uh, obviously, it's inconsistent with our current First Amendment doctrine here in the U.S. today. But what would you think about the U.S. adopting that standard, which is a standard that has been adopted in a number of European countries uh, and is more restrictive of speech but protective of other kinds of values? So there's a good deal of literature that tries to explain why athletes in certain sports of African descent may be more successful than those of non-African descent. But fast twitch muscles and things like that. Would that scholarship violate such a law because it's about racial superiority? You know, Clarence Thomas opposes affirmative action because his affirmative action is inherently stigmatizing to minorities and creates the impression they couldn't succeed without it. Does that then provide a basis for censoring speech about affirmative action? I also think that one of the best examples that I've seen of where more speech work is Charles Murray wrote a book where he argued that there's inherent intellectual difference in races. And once it was published, there were then scathing critiques showing why his methodology was just wrong. I think that's a place where having speech and more speech actually work. And suppressing the speech wouldn't eliminate the idea or refute the idea as much as having the speech be responded to. Yes, in the back, please. Yeah, so uh, you were talking about how, uh, how the First Amendment, or at least in your opinion, doesn't really cover speech that's used to suppress other speech. Uh, it sort of, in the world today, since money and resources are uh, political contributions are, are used are, are considered a form of free speech, uh, at, at, what, at what point does the amplification of certain points of view to the point that they completely eclipse other points of view become a suppression in that way? 
And then uh, a, a, a separate question. Uh, at, at what point does, uh, does a speech become an incitement of violence? Uh, I mean, of course, if, you, if, if a person is like, uh, if, if there's an angry mob right there and the person says, kill person's ex or something like that, of course, that's, that's a clear uh, incitement of violence. But what if they're just holding a speech and they call citizens of X, uh, you know, persecute group X? Uh, does that become a, uh, an incitement to violence? Or sure. what are your thoughts on that? Sure. As the former question, I'll go to Dean Klopfenberg's question from a moment ago. I think that Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission was wrongly decided. In a couple of cases, Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce and Federal Electric versus McCullough. The Supreme Court said one of the reasons we can restrict speech corporations and unions from corporate union treasuries is their ability to drown out other voices. I think that was right. Citizens United overruled that. I also question, though it's beyond the scope here, that spending money should be regarded as speech. I think it's a form of conduct. I know the phrase money talks. But I think that's taking a figurative expression far too little. In terms of incitement, I think that the Brandenburg test got it right. There's to be a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity, and the speech has to be directed causing imminent illegal activity. Long ago, the Supreme Court said that every idea in a way is an incitement. Undoubtedly, you can draw some kind of a link between speech and bad things that happen later, but that doesn't mean that the speech can be punished. We saw what happened when that was the test for incitement. That led during World War I to speech criticizing the war and the draft being punished. We're doing McCarthy era to speech that was just teaching about communism being punished. I think the Brandenburg test is the right test. Now, we could look at any hypothetical and say, how does the Brandenburg test apply when they agree or disagree? But I think it's the right test. Margaret. Oh, <laughs> um, so because you're, you also wear the hat of dean, um, and I know just from your work that you're very opposed to bigotry and have worked hard against it. How do you communicate, let's say, in the swastika kind of incident um, and model reason discourse for the law school community? Do you issue a statement talking about free speech and? I found out about the swastika incident at 4 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. Now, different spoke at noon. At 8 o'clock on Thursday morning, I sent a message to all faculty, staff, and students in the strongest possible terms condemning the swastika and explaining why it's inconsistent with the community we are and aspire to be. I know that more speech can't eliminate the pain that people feel speaking. Seeing the picture of the swastika around Dershowitz's face was to me like a punch in the stomach. It made me feel sick to myself. More speech can't eliminate that. But more speech can say something about the kind of community we are. I also sent out an announcement to the students and staff and faculty at the very beginning of the school year, long before this, you know, six four, five this happened, in which I talked about um, what kind of community we want to be in terms of speech. And one of the things I said in that message is, just because there's a First Amendment right to say something, doesn't mean that it should be said. That we should be a, a, a school where we treat everyone, those we agree with and disagree with, with respect. Um, 
I sent a message at the beginning of this semester, on the first day of the semester, talking about the kind of school I see us as in wanting to be. I don't know if that helps get us there, but it's one of the things that's been important for campus officials to do. Yes, please. Um, so I, I was at Miss Bob, as you were talking about how you know, the internet has really changed speech. So I, I would imagine in the 60s, if somebody was to come onto a campus, it was really to offer an idea and to share an idea that maybe wasn't that widely known. Now you are able to YouTube anything you want. And so do you think that in that way now, when somebody comes onto a campus, it's more providing a platform for that person because the offering of ideas has already taken place on the internet and perhaps there is there an argument for regulating something more there than there was previously? A great question. Mm -hmm. I think that speakers have often wanted to come on campus because they wanted a platform. I think the reason Berkeley is in particular used for this is that speakers believe that what happens at Berkeley is more likely to get national publicity and it gives them a platform. And one of the ironies that I think occurred this fall was I truly believe that what Milo Yiannopoulos and those responsive free speech week most wanted was the campus to keep them from speaking. And the way it played out was this game of chicken which started with Milo Yiannopoulos' declaring free speech week. And the campus said, okay. And then Milo Yiannopoulos, or the sponsor said, and Ann Coulter is coming too. And they said, okay. And then they said, Steve Bannon is coming too. And they said, okay. And finally, the Sponsors said, no, no, we're really not doing it. It's not clear that in culture, see Dan coming. So it's a strange thing of using the platform, hoping you'll be kept from speaking. Um, but I, I think it's always been the case that people want to go because they want to be a platform. Um, the civil rights movement in the early 1960s wanted to use the campuses, the launch campus as a platform, because they wanted the message to get across. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would often have children be at the front of the march. So when the police came with billy clubs, that's what the national image would be. So I don't think that that's changed now. I just think that the internet means that whatever happens can be disseminated so much more quickly. And what concerns me about that, as I said, is it then means very private things can be disseminated quickly, mandatory things, the ability to harass the internet. I'm not sure if I'm getting at your question. I just wonder if if there could be an argument that the offering of ideas has already taken place on the on the YouTube or the internet, um, and so the platform is now more meaningful than it could have been like 30, 40 years ago. But the ideas often have been there through other media before somebody comes onto campus. Imagine a speaker has written a book and then comes to campus to talk about it. Imagine a speaker had been on television and then comes to campus to talk about it. I just think, and your point is an excellent one, that the internet means that more people may have been exposed to that speaker and that very speech than would have occurred previously. And I think that's right. I'm not sure of the implications of that. Um, one of the things that was suggested in the fall of Berkeley is instead of having the speakers come on campus, just have them speak in a studio and make the speech available via the internet. Um, and I said, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't count as an adequate alternative place for communication. Um, but it, I don't know if that's the implication of it already being on the internet. Time for one more question, sir. Yes. Great. Uh, I, I'll start with the question. I, I kind of wanted to know what the just, the justification for the reasoning behind the 
immediate threat test was. Um, the kind of background to it is I'm from Bakersfield. I went to Cal State Bakersfield, and uh, Milo or Milo, you know, we were invited to campus as well um, for reasons that the college campus club did not pay for him to come and offer free tickets. Did he didn't end up coming? But I'm kind of curious about that test because a lot of times him, Ben Shapiro, some of these other speakers will come out and say, you know, I said all these horrible things. I might have advocated violence, but it wasn't immediate. And they'll just say I was a troll. You know, I called people faggots, crannies, illegals, all these other terrible slurs. But I didn't immediately want them to be harmed. Like go home, think about how terrible these minority groups are, and then maybe commit violence then on Friday after after, after, after you were drinking. Um, they're not saying that explicitly, but I guess that I'm, that's kind of my question: is where where did that justification come from? Because even if it's not immediate, if I tell you, you know, at Friday night we're going to go beat up some. Mexicans and Jews. Why does that not, even though it's not immediate, why does that not satisfy the test of immediate threat? Or why, why is the test there, I guess? Some of it is that if it's not immediate, there's time for more speech. Mm -hmm. I think if it's not immediate, there's time for reflection. I think if there's not time for reflection, if there's not time for more speech, if it's somebody in front of a crowd exhorting to violence right now, that's what incitement seems to be about. The alternative really risks saying, well, this idea can lead to harms down the road. And I alluded to during World War I, the government prohibited criticism of the draft and the war effort. And the Supreme Court allowed ineffectual leaflets to be punished as incitement. During the McCarthy era, people were teaching what's a Marx and Lenin, where they would be punished for inciting. And I think what the court has tried to do is to come up with a definition of incitement that wouldn't lead to those results, the consensus were badly decided cases. Thank you so much for having me.